Tonight, uh, we're doing part two to Is Your Faith Is Real? That was the lesson we started last week on this. Is Your Faith Real? And as we found out last week, the last time we were together, we learned that there's two types of faith. There is a dead faith. There is a dead faith and a living faith. And I know from talking with some of you, some of you had no idea on this, and some of you have been very concerned uh, since that last uh, message last week that maybe you had a dead faith, which is part of the reason I'm doing this. Um, that's the function here. And we learned that there's two types of faith because of the book of James. James chapter 2 specifically talks about this, um, this marvelous little jam-packed book. I love the book of James. Um, all sorts of guidelines on how to live a Christian life and how to live a true Christian life, a real Christian life with real faith, with true faith. So, um, as we uh, get started with this tonight, let's open in prayer, ask God to bless our time, and the Holy Spirit does the teaching here, because you sure don't want me to do it. And let's get started. Father, we thank you so much for this time we have, and for a beautiful day that you gave us. It was not very humid, it was rather cool, sort of a refresher as to what we've had the last few days. Also, thank you, Lord, for each person who's sitting in here tonight, that they're not sick with the flu, which had been going around. And Lord, we also thank you for those who are listening on the internet through this lesson also. And that, Lord, you would hear our prayers, as you always do. But Lord, we ask tonight that you would teach us, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, it tells us in the book of Corinthians, that your Spirit is what does the teaching. And we invite your Spirit here now. In this next half hour, as we explore more into the book of James, that, dear God, your Spirit would teach us things that would draw us closer to you and would impact our life and help us in the transformation of being a true Christian to be more and more like Christ. I pray, Lord, that tonight with this lesson, more people will develop a deeper relationship with you. Maybe some will even come to know you as Lord and Savior as a result of what your spirit will do tonight. But in any case, we ask now as we come into this time of worship where we explore what your word says and revere what you say and honor you and glorify you, Lord. This is true worship, and we ask that you would help us to grow in this, that this would be an offering, Lord, that we give you, but also that your spirit would teach us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So, James wrote his epistle, as I discussed last week, for his church, the Christian church. This is a book written for Christians. And there was a problem going around in that church. Um, James had to write this as he felt that there was a major problem going on because people had verbally accepted, it seems like, saying that verbally that they're Christians, but they sure weren't living it. And so he writes this. And he wrote this epistle to this church, which was composed primarily, at this time in Christian history, it was composed primarily of former Jews, Jews who had now become professing Christians, that Jesus is the Messiah. And the problem is, what these Jews had been taught prior, as I talked about last week, these Jews had been uh, raised in this idea that 
their heritage counted towards salvation, uh, being descendants of Abraham, that if by doing deeds, certain acts, and, and following the commandments, like even to the point of tithing, to the point of uh, performing each individual sacrifice mentioned in the Torah, uh, celebrating each one of the holidays and each one of the feasts, all these things would add to security to heaven. Also, as I mentioned last week, just the, even the giving of alms to the poor had become a Jewish lesson that was never something God told them, but it was a man-made tradition that they came up with that if you give alms to the poor, it actually earns you points to get into heaven. And so that was the background of these people. Now they become Christians and they find out, wow, that's not the way that you get to heaven. So they had a uh, totally different take to it because now they're saved by faith. And so by having faith in Jesus Christ, they were professing to be Christians. But there was a problem. And it was a serious problem. The people of this church now, these Christians that James is writing to, were thinking that just because they professed the name of Jesus as their Lord, just by saying that, they became Christians. They didn't have to do anything else. All you have to do is profess the name of Jesus and you're saved. Jesus is Lord. Wow, I say that, I'm saved. And that's what they had been doing. James recognized this problem in their church because what was going on is people were saying, yes, I believe Jesus is Lord, but they did not change anyway in the way that they were living. Their life, the way that they lived their life was exactly the same as before, it was what taking place before they professed Jesus as Lord and Savior. And James is saying that type of faith is dead. That is not a living type of faith, but that's what they were doing. They were going around and thinking because they had heard from people, no doubt, that those who profess the name of Jesus is Lord, you're saved. Because you're saying Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is Lord. Voila, I'm saved. But the thing is, that's as far as their faith went. They did not see any changes. They were just living their wicked life exactly the same way. There was no change in them whatsoever. There was no transformation. There was no evidence of the Holy Spirit living inside of them. There was nothing there. And James calls that type of faith a dead faith. No doubt there are many people in the church today that are in the same predicament and not realizing it. They believe, as we talked about last week, having a head knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, believing that Jesus rose from the dead, was crucified to save the world, that his blood was shed for everyone, that he was put into the grave and he rose again. Having the head knowledge of that and saying, yeah, Jesus is Lord, the church was thinking, okay, that's all I need to do to get saved. I can go out and live my life however I want. I don't have to worry about anything because I got my insurance from hell uh, card here so I can go out and do whatever I want now. And James is saying, no, that is not right. That is a dead faith. And as a, we talked about last week also, a dead faith is not a saving faith. And I cannot help but think that there are many people in the evangelical world today sitting in our churches, sitting in our pews, possibly even teaching Sunday school classes or working in VBS or in youth ministries and stuff that are under the exact same opinion of salvation as what this early church was. That if you just profess the name of Jesus, if you have the head knowledge of this, voila, you're a Christian. And James is saying no. That's why he said, show me evidence of it. Show me proof. Show me your faith. 
That's what we talked about last week. So all of this comes about dealing with James chapter 2. And let's take a look again. I'm going to go to the interlinear Bible, which is a very accurate word-for-word translation. Since we're dealing with individual words in this passage, I don't want to use the NIV or the NLT, which is a thought-for-thought translation. I want to get to something that goes back to the original language as close as we know. And so that's why I'm using the interlinear Bible for this. So James chapter 2, 14 through 20 reads, my brothers, what is the gain if anyone says he has faith, but he does not have works. Is faith able to save him? But if a brother or sister is naked and may be lacking in daily food, and any one of you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but does not give them the things the body needs, what gain is it? So also, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. But are you willing to know, O vain man, that faith apart from works is dead? So there we go. That's the passage. James was defining a dead faith, which is what was apparently running rampant in his church. And he's defining it and telling them there is a difference between a dead faith and a living faith in God. As we talked about last week, just having head knowledge, just knowing the facts does not save you. Even the demons know that stuff. You think the demons don't know that Jesus came to die for all the sinners of the world? Do you not think the demons know that uh, Jesus' blood was for the atonement of the sins of the world? Do you not think that the demons know that Jesus was put into a grave and that he was, rose again on the third day? Of course the demons know all this. And the thing is, they just hear the name of Jesus and they shudder. And as I said last week, that's something I hate to say, but demons do better than we do. We have lost such respect for God. But that's what's going on. That's what's happening here in this passage. Um, So, there is a dead faith. Having just head knowledge of Jesus, of Jesus' teaching, of his resurrection is not enough. Even demons know this. And they're obviously not saved. Where James is telling us he wants a living faith. How do we have a living faith? How do we do works and stuff? You're not saved by works. That has not been said here. What you are saved by is this true faith. But when you become saved, the thing is, the Holy Spirit is placed inside of you. You now become the temple of God. You are now the tabernacle. And the Spirit lives inside of you. And you can't have the Spirit of a holy God living inside of you. And you continue in the same manner you were living before you become a Christian. I had a person last week, I won't say who it was, who was sitting in here and asked me about this. And they said to me, how do I know I'm really saved? How do I know if I have the real faith? And what I said was, what was your faith What was your life like, excuse me, what was your life like before your salvation experience? Do you see a difference in the way that you live now as to what you lived before? 
because it's going to be changed. You, as a, as a born-again believer in Christ and the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you cannot be the same person. There is a transformation that happens. The old life is done away with. You become, as Paul writes, a new creation. Your life is different. You start, you're not changed into perfection. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. But God is going to transform you more and more as the older you get. And walking with him, you'll become more and more like Christ. You will see differences in your life. And I challenge you at New Year's, take a look and see what's happened in your life. Have you grown closer? Have you grown more Christ-like? Are you denying parts of your sinful life now? Is that happening? Because if you're living the exact same way you were before, it might not be a living faith. A living faith results in you doing and living your life differently because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. You can't be saved and not have this Holy Spirit living inside of you. Paul tells us, James is telling us also, the Spirit of God inside of you, you're going to be different. And that's why Paul calls it a new creation. It is a new creation. You have a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 specifically talks about we become a new creation, a new person, a new persona. Your life is different, and it will continue to keep growing different because the Spirit is going to keep trying to change you. And where sinful things in your past, before you became a Christian, start popping up, the Holy Spirit helps you, okay, that's not the way I'm going to go anymore. And you start seeing these things happening. And you start doing things more for Christ, not trying to earn your salvation. You're already saved, but you are saved, as I said last week, to perform good deeds, to perform good deeds and acts and things. So your life is different. Paul Washer, a pastor, he wrote this. Since, you know, like following Jesus changes a person's life, the proof of faith is shown in the works and the deeds. He wrote this. The evidence of salvation, the evidence of repentance, the evidence of faith is a changed and a changing life. The evidence, remember I told you last week if a person comes up, hey, are you a Christian? You can say, yeah, you, fine. Anybody can say they are. But then you ask, where's the proof? Paul Washer's telling us the proof. The evidence of your salvation is a changed and a changed, changing life. Even C.S. Lewis wrote on this. The Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. And that this process goes on very far inside. One's most private wishes, one's point of view are the things that have to be changed. And the Spirit of God does this. That's how this all takes place. It's not you doing it. Do you understand this? It's the Spirit working in you. As I said last week, this is so important. We are not saved by these works. That does not save you. Our salvation will show works. If you have living faith, the way you live your life is going to show. It's not something you're going to keep hidden very well. It's going to show in the way that you live your life, the actions that you do, the people possibly you hang with, the way you act around people, the way you act around your parents. We are saved to do works. We're not saved by them. Well, as we've said this thing, uh, faith always seems 
um, something that Christians like to talk about and stuff. Dead faith is something that you really can't see at all. I mean, if, if someone comes up and says, yeah, I'm a Christian, and if they have no works, if they, if they aren't truly saved, I mean, they have no evidence to show. So it's pretty, pretty simple. You know, even John the Baptist talked on this. It was, this isn't something just James does. John the Baptist talks about this also, that you will see a true faith. A true faith will always be seen in the works of a Christian. You will always see this. A dead faith, it's not even visible. And John the Baptist talked about this as he talked about repentance. We talked about this once before too. There's a difference between asking forgiveness and repentance. Forgiveness, oh, I'm sorry. Repentance goes a lot further because it's changing your lifestyle. Lord, help me. I never want to do that again. Put your spirit into me and, and help me not to ever mess up like that again. That's where we're getting more into repentance. And he taught this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Look what it says. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You notice it says bear fruit. John the Baptist says bear fruit. He's not talking about putting your feet in some soil and hoping apples are going to grow on you or your fruit of the, uh, fruit of the loom underwear startling, turns into those little characters you used to be on TV and you have fruit all around your loins. No, that's not what he's talking about. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but bearing fruit means the good deeds. Good deeds. When you repent, when you turn to Christ... Good deeds just follow the bearing of the fruit in keeping with repentance. Not only that, Jesus taught this also. He taught this a lot. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your, what? Good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right here, though, Jesus is saying, you become my follower, guess what? It's going to yield good works good deeds. Here's another one in Matthew 7, 21. And I talked about this last week. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, does the will of my Father? Does. We're not talking about just having a blind faith. Does the will is an action. The actions that a person does will come forth. That's what will be seen. That's what Jesus is talking about. You become my true follower, there's going to be a difference in your life, and you'll start acting differently, and you'll start doing the will of my Father. Or John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's scary. That is really scary. Think about that. I mean, the verse before was scary too. How many people think they've done all this for Christ, go up and, and enter into the heaven and they stand before Christ and Christ says, hey, depart from me. I never knew you. But Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We preached in your name. We taught in your name. Uh, we led people to salvation. We did miracles. We cast out demons. Depart from me. You never knew me. And here he's saying too, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's not a positive or a little bit further in John 15, verses 5 and 6. Whoever abides in me and I in him, look what it says, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into fire and are burned. That's not a nice scenario to think about. Jesus is talking about hell. 
But what are we supposed to be doing? It is he that bears much fruit, the actions of your life. When the Holy Spirit indwells you, you just start living differently. So that's what you need to focus on. If someone asks you, are you a Christian? There's your answer by looking at the evidence of what your life is like. I, I wasn't going to say this, but God just popped this in my head. I remember back when I was in high school, I was a freshman in high school. This is back when the earth was cooling. And I, at the church where I was attending, we were having like the 20th anniversary or something of our church actually forming. And like I said, I was in high school. And the pastor who started our church, he had gone on to pre, uh, preach, or, I'm sorry, teach at a major university down south in North Carolina. But they brought back the first pastor for this reunion, this big celebration we were having about the, the um, church, you know, the, as this church formed. And I remember his name was Pastor Wellner. I'll never forget him. He was, um, even uh, as a little kid, a, a small child in early elementary, I still remember this guy. Um, for one, I, I have certain memories. One, I've never seen anybody sweat when he preached as much as him. Um, he had, uh, it's, the lights just started glowing off of his head. At least I think that's what it was. Maybe it was, you know, God's anointing or something. I don't know. But anyway, he really glowed when he preached and stuff. But I had such respect for him. I had not seen him in years. He left before I got even into middle school uh, to take this other position. But they brought him back. And I was going down the stairs, and he was coming up the stairs in the church uh, during the celebration thing. It was like an in-between thing. And he actually said, um, Michael, I want to, can you stop a second? I want to tell you something. And I said, sure. And I looked up at him and he said, um, I want to thank you so much for living your Christian life the way you do. And I was like, now he hasn't even been around me or anything. How does he know anything about me? I don't know. Is he just giving me a compliment or what? So I asked him, I said, what do you mean? How do you know anything about what my life is? And he says, I know that it's your school. You witness to the students in your class. I know you hand out Bibles and stuff. And I'm like, who told you this? He says, that's not important. The thing is, continue doing that. Because he says, that is showing that you're walking close with God. And I'll never forget that. Now, I'm not bragging on my point. The thing is, it was evidence. I became a Christian at the end of my eighth grade year. And this was evidence. It's the evidence what we've been talking about here. That's what we're, we're mentioning. That's the thing. When you become a Christian, have true faith, your life is different. A person, though, is not saved by works. But their life will produce good works. How many times people come up to me, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. First thing I ask, look at your life. Can you figure out the moment when you think you accepted Christ as your Savior, when you became a Christian? Yeah. What was your life before that to what it's like now? And that's what I'm asking you to do right now. Think about it. Has your life changed? I mean, because this is the evidence of being saved. That's why... James wrote in verse 18, show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by from my works. But remember, preaching the name of Jesus or prophesying, casting out demons, working VBS, stuff like that, that does not save you. 
And there are people who think that that is saving them because they're doing that. They have a dead faith and they're thinking they're going to come up to God and they're going to say, hey, look at all I've done for you, boy. Let me in. I'm, I'm gonna, I should have a really nice mansion on a great golden street here or something. Jesus says, get out of here. You're not even a member of me. You, you don't know anything about me. We have to be careful. We're not saved by our works. We're saved to do good works. So if someone comes up, are you a Christian? Now you know how to answer that. And the thing is, it's not what you do. You remember this? It's not what you're doing. When Pastor Weldner said this to me, I was, I was so puzzled on who he would talk to because I had no idea anybody knew that I was witnessing in classes and I was going into the bathrooms. It's, he, he knew all about this, how I was going into the bathrooms and unrolling the toilet paper in the bathrooms and sticking tracks and little Jesus loves you stickers in that as I rolled it back up. And yeah, Christians do that. <laughs> well, I haven't done that. I'm kind of not a Christian. Yeah, you're not a Christian. No. <laughs> That's not one of the things. But the thing is, you act different. I never would have done that beforehand. But I started acting different, and he noticed that. And so we see this. And there is evidence then if you become a Christian or not. So, and the thing is, the absence of good works in your life, that's the big thing. It's not like, oh, I did this, I did this, and did this. It's actually the Spirit of God doing this in you. You're just the vessel. You're just the tool. I was just the tool that God was using. There was nothing special about me doing all this witnessing and handing out Bibles and stuff like that. Was, it's what God was getting glorified by. That was the key. But the thing is, if you don't have any good works, if you're living your life and there's no change in your life, if it's still the exact same, there's no evidence, uh, there's an absence of good works in your life, that could be, could be an indicator that maybe the faith you have is dead. And that is really scary. Let's continue back with this in James chapter 2, 21 through 26, the interlinear Bible again. Was not our father Abraham justified by works, offering up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith worked in his works. And by the works of the faith was made complete. And the scriptures was fulfilled saying, and Abraham believed God and it was counted for righteousness to him and he was called friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this is an interesting statement. Um, that last phrase right there, I'm going to keep going with this passage, but I want to make sure you read this with me. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, because I'm going to come back to that. But continuing in verse 25. But in the same way, Rahab, the harlot, was also justified by works, having received the messengers and sending them out by another way. As for the body is dead apart from the spirit, so also faith is dead apart from works. Now, this seems like, wow, this is a major contradiction, it seems like, with what Paul writes. Justified by works, where Paul writes, we're justified by faith. Martin Luther, drove, this drove him absolutely nuts. And as a matter of fact, he got so frustrated trying to figure this out. That one verse, verse uh, 24 in James chapter 2, that he basically wanted to just take James out of the Bible. He wanted to literally just rip it out of the Bible because he didn't like that statement. 
And today, many Christians and even non-Christians will say, see, the Bible has many contradictions in it, and this is one of the contradictions. And to show you, are we justified by works? Isn't that the direct opposition to what Paul wrote? James says that in verse 24, that we're justified by works. But I have been telling you all along, you're not justified by works. But here, James actually said we're justified by works. Because Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It's not works. As it says in verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Here we have you're saved by faith, not of works, where James chapter 2, 24 says that works are how we're justified. So people say, wow, James and Paul must be slugging it out in heaven to this day, trying to figure out who's right. Or, or we can continue here. How about Galatians chapter 2, verse 16? Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, doesn't it appear that there's a major contradiction here in the Bible with what James is saying? We are justified by works. Paul's saying we are not justified by works. So it seems to a lot of people that there is this, this thing. Or look at this one, Romans 3.28. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So a lot of people get very confused here. And some people, I fear, really do believe that they, all they have to do is have this head knowledge of Jesus and voila, I'm saved. Anybody who proclaims the name of Jesus, okay, they're saved. Well, that's a dead faith. So what's going on? What is Paul actually trying to say here? Why does it seem like there's such a contradiction between these two biblical characters? Are they really fighting each other as it appears to some people? But actually not. I can tell you, you already know the answer is going to be, well, they're not. But how do you explain it, Michael? Well, there's a very easy way to explain this. Remember, first of all, whenever you see a contradiction in the Bible, I caution you to do a couple of things. First of all, Look at the verse where the contradictions are, are placed, where it appears the contradictions are. Find out first, and you might need a new, new American Standard Bible to do this, find out where the paragraph begins. You can't go with an NLT or an NIB because they put paragraphs all over the place. They're all scattered all over. You've got to go back into an original language like an interlinear Bible or a new American Standard. Find out where the paragraph is, where it begins, and find out what the thesis sentence of the paragraph is. That's rule number one. If I ever come a contradiction, rule number one, look to see what the, where this verse is in relation to the paragraph. Because remember, in a paragraph, the first opening sentence of a paragraph is called the thesis or the topic sentence. Every sentence in that paragraph pertains to that first sentence. When it no longer does, you start a second paragraph. So some contradictions you can actually just figure out and find out they're taking something totally out of context because it's not fitting with what the thesis sentence is. Another thing you want to do, if ever you see a contradiction, apparent, apparently a, a contradiction in the Bible, is find out who is the audience that the, the, where the contradictions are. Who is the audience? Who is being written to? In James, I've already filled you in on that. It was this Christian church that had a little messed up theology to it. But in Ephesians and Galatians, it's different. 
So you want to see who is the audience. Third thing, the third thing whenever to do, if ever you seemingly come across a contradiction, go back to the original language. If you can get hold of an interlinear Bible or... New American standards are very, very accurate, but an interlinear will give you the Hebrew and the Greek, and you can get things like, you know, keyword study Bibles also that have dictionaries. You can look up the words, and that can sometimes alleviate things. I found a lot of problems can be resolved because they have made a translation uh, difficulty going from Greek or Hebrew into English. Using those little keys usually will help you out with almost any contradiction, and you'll find out there's not contradictions in the Bible. Well, in this case here, Paul was not writing to the same audience that James was, these Jews. He was writing to a Gentile population. The Jews, remember, thought you could get to heaven at first just by your birth and doing all these deeds. And then they started just thinking, well, if you profess the name of Jesus, now you're going to heaven. You don't have to do anything. Oh, you got to do so. Oh, I'm going, you know, Jesus is Lord. Wow, I can go live my life I want. I can go cheat. I can go lie. I can go commit adultery. It doesn't matter because I have fire insurance from hell because I said Jesus is Lord. That was what was going on in the church that James was writing to. Paul is writing to a totally different audience. So the audience had a different problem. And as he's addressing this problem to them, these Gentiles, what they were teaching and what they were thinking, the only way to eternal life is you had to work your way there. Because these are Greeks and and Romans and stuff like this that are trying to appease the gods in everything that they ever did. They're always trying to appease the gods. So you have to keep doing all these different acts all the time to make the gods like you more and to love you more. And Paul is saying, no, you don't work to get your salvation. You don't try and do all these deeds to appease God. One, God already loves you. So their audience is totally different. Paul is telling them that you can't work your way to eternal life. With the way that you worshiped idols, that's the way you did it. But that's not the way you really do it now. Not with God, the real true God. That comes from having faith. And the word for faith here is the word that's been used in these two passages is the word pistis. Pistis is transformed from a root word, pisteu, which is, as I've mentioned before, this is not head knowledge. We, we in English, translate pisteu into belief, but that is not a good English translation of this Greek word. Pisteu means more of a commitment and a trust in, not a head knowledge in. That would be the word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnosis, that's a different word. If it's head knowledge, this is pisteu, which is meaning a commitment to, a total trust in. That's how you're saved that the blood of Jesus Christ can cover all your sins, that God will fulfill his promise where he says that if anybody trusts in my son to, that there, his blood will cover your sins, I will save you. Having that type of faith and commitment, Lord, I commit my life to you because you are God. I'm, you put your spirit inside of me. That's what God wants us to do. That's salvation. That's how you get saved. James, though, is addressing a different group of people who are saying, hey, I know Jesus, so I'm going to heaven and I can just keep living my life any way I want to. That was the problem with his church. So you see, they're talking to two different audiences. And actually, let's put it in a T-chart. Whenever you get into a, a thing where you're comparing two different things, build a T-chart, something they taught me in teacher school. 
Paul, he's writing followers that claim to be saved by faith. James is writing followers that claim to be saved by faith. Both of them are claiming the same thing in a way. But Paul, what happened to Paul's audience, they began to add the law, the Old Testament sacrifices, the rite of circumcision, keeping the holidays, uh, paying alms. They started putting all this other stuff into it. They tried to gain God's, gain God's credit by doing ceremonies and traditions. James is not saying that. But that's what Paul's audience was. That's why Paul is saying you're saved by faith, not by the works. You're saved by the faith. James, on the other hand, they had a head knowledge of Jesus. They had no commitment. They had no trust in him. No true relationship with God. They had just a title, and that was basically it. The title of being Christian. They didn't carry anything else. You see, there is no controversy here. There is no controversy. Do you know something? Even Paul says the same thing James says. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one will boast. We always memorize those two verses, but we never seem to memorize the next one. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved, like I said last week, we are saved to do good works. They're not in, James and Paul are not fighting, fist fighting each other face to face with this problem. Instead, they're standing side by side fighting this argument. Now, looking specifically at this verse, verse chapter 2, 24 in James, you see then that a man is justified by works. In Romans chapter 5, Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Here again, seems like there's a contradiction here. Remember your audience and what's going on. But to really show you how simple this is, that this is not a major conflict, it's not a major problem, is to take a look at what this word justified means. The word justified is the, the Greek word dikayo, uh, and it's an aorist verb with two meanings. Dikayo means, number one, the first definition. You know how many verbs have more than one definition? The first definition means to exonerate or to treat as righteous. Exonerate or to treat as righteous. The second definition of dikayo is it means to vindicate or to show or to demonstrate as righteous. Treat as righteous, demonstrate as, as righteous. In Romans chapter 5, what Paul is using, and he goes on in chapters 4 and 5 to talk more about this, he's using the first definition of this word. James, in his book, chapter 2, is using the second definition. It's not a conflict when you understand that this word justified has two meanings, and they're using it, talking to their audience in these two different ways. It's not a contradiction. You'd think Luther would have caught this. So there is no controversy. We are saved by pistis when you believe pisteo. So my question for you tonight, as we're just wrapping this up, what type of faith do you have? Is it a commitment? Is it a trust and total commitment to Christ? Is the Holy Spirit living inside of you? You see evidence of this from your prior life? Or 
Do you have like a Gnosis type of faith? It's just head knowledge and it's not real. It's dead. Only you can answer that. Because when we become Christians, God places his Holy Spirit inside of us. This transformation begins. And it's a long transportation as long as you live. It's a transformation. It just keeps going. He's making you more and more and more to be like Christ as you continue to grow and walk with him. That's the difference between a dead faith and a living faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time we've had here tonight and we've explored this. Lord, I feel, I feel like I haven't made this really clear and I just ask your Holy Spirit to continue to teach and to really work on the minds of the people in here. And Lord, I, I do fear that there are people sitting right here in front of me right now that do not have the Pishtuo type of faith, that they have a dead faith. And I pray that everyone in here, everybody who's listening on the internet, will examine their life. Do they have a living faith? Can they see evidence of this? Because we should be able to see that. We are saved by faith to do good works. But it's not the doing of good works. That's the result. That just happens as you keep transforming us. So may your spirit continue to speak to us as this evening goes and throughout this week we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.